Over the past 16 months, under the weight of a global pandemic, scientists and medical professionals have had to rethink the way they do things. There must be lessons we can learn from this experience. That's the topic of this special episode for The Spectator's podcast, sponsored by the pharmaceutical company Novartis. I'm Kate Andrews, and I'm delighted to be joined by a panel of expert guests, Chimney Bott, Managing Director in the UK for Novartis, Professor Paul Martin, a sociologist tasked with finding better ways to collaborate between the medical sector and other sectors, and Nicole Mather, the life sciences lead at the technology company IBM, who have been crucial in the UK's pandemic response. There's a lot to talk about, and today I want to discuss everything from repurposing drugs to cutting red tape. But Nicole, to start, you worked on the UK's recovery trial, a program which looked at how existing drugs can help treat COVID-19. Listeners may remember this. I'm absolutely delighted that the uh, biggest breakthrough yet has been made by a fantastic team of scientists right here in the UK. And The research led by a team of scientists at Oxford University shows that dexamethasone, a familiar steroid that's been in use for 60 years, can be remarkably effective. The drug cuts the risk of death by a third for patients on ventilators and by a fifth for those requiring oxygen. Can you tell us about what you did on that project and what's been learned from it? Yeah, absolutely. So we were part of the DigiTrials Consortium and we provided the data services to the recovery trial. And in setting up the recovery trial, we aimed to make it really simple so that it didn't take a long time for doctors to onboard patients and to get it through the regulatory processes really quickly. We also then used the DigiTrials data services, the data that was ordinarily collected through the NHS so that doctors didn't have to record additional data. And it was then, it was also published very quickly. So there was a preprint which was available for people to read the results. So the, uh, the data services from DigiTrials allowed the data management committee after only two weeks uh, of to, uh, to see, you know, whether the patients had, had survived. So that was how we could see that dexamethasone was really making a difference. So it was that transparency that I think really helped the results get through, um, you know, to people all around the world very quickly. So this harvesting and processing of data made it easier for doctors and nurses in the moment because they didn't have to do as much. And you're saying it made it easier for other companies and health systems around the world to see the results. Yeah, exactly. Chinmay, what's the leading role played by data and technology in general, such as artificial intelligence in your company? And how has that helped with the company's COVID efforts? I think one of the first things we've done with data is to actually look back at our existing suite of medications to see if we could apply any of these for helping patients that were suffering from COVID-19. A lot of this basically allowed us to narrow down four candidates a couple of them in the oncology space, and then some in the inflammation immunology space, that we then had a very strong hypothesis based on the data that could be potential candidates for COVID-19 patients. So this is a very real application where we've used data and artificial intelligence to try and figure out how do we take the entire suite of medications we have and narrow them down. We've also applied a lot of our data practices within our manufacturing facilities because we've gone through a process where we wanted to make sure that throughout the pandemic, no patient had to wait for their supply of medications. So looking at uh, where do we need to adjust our manufacturing processes in order to either dial up or dial down some of the 
medications that we were providing has also been very, very critical uh, throughout the past 18 months. And speaking of data, your chief executive has said in the past that Novartis is a data science company. Now, of course, it's more commonly thought of as a pharmaceutical company. Is this PR rebranding or is there a meaningful difference here? I mean, there's a very big and meaningful difference here. One of the things we've done over the past five years is to actually take all of our clinical trials data going back to the 60s and 70s and tried to digitize everything, including the images that we've collected through the clinical trial process. And this allows us to do exactly what I was talking about earlier, which is to go back and retrospectively look at the data through artificial intelligence and make connections which would have taken us months or even years to do them manually. The other thing we're doing also on the research side is to really apply data and data-based algorithms to significantly accelerate our approaches to finding targets for specific disease areas. So it's very real for us, and it's it's a journey. We've come a long way over the last five years, but it's more than rhetoric. Paul, there's also been a place for social scientists in this effort. You've been tasked by the Wellcome Trust to look into the policy of repurposing drugs. Tell us about that. So my work is interested in how can we extend that paradigm of drug repurposing much more broadly to encompass both drugs that are held by companies such as Novartis that are in their libraries, if you like, and are patented. But above all, I'm interested in off-patent drugs, generic drugs that can be repurposed particularly in the area of rare diseases. So one of the problems with rare diseases is that the it's very expensive to do drug development, the markets are very small, uh, and there's increasing interest amongst patient groups and clinicians in trying to use existing generic drugs that are already known for their safety profile and repurpose them to have new purposes and indications. And that requires... Uh, quite a bit of thinking in terms of public policy and finance because the commercial incentives aren't necessarily there uh, in that area uh, because they're off patent. And so uh, I think what's uh, happening is a very interesting policy conversation in the NHS and MHRA, the regulatory authority, looking at novel ways in which drug repurposing for these products can be organised alongside the commercial efforts that have been made by companies such as Novartis to re-look at how they can reuse their existing compound library. So I think it's a really exciting area, but it requires quite a lot of thinking that challenges some of the assumptions in the existing sort of pharmaceutical model in the the marketplace. The results of repurposing certain medicines is very mixed, as we learned over the past 16 months when it comes to COVID. But you are saying you think this is a very important part of our future with medicine. Yeah, I think it's part of, a, I think, a, a more mixed economy. So clearly companies like Novartis are going to be investing in, in breaking new ground with very advanced therapeutics. But I think trying to have a more open source model of innovation in which we're using the existing stock of knowledge, those compounds we know about, the clinical knowledge we have about those existing drugs is really potentially powerful, especially when linked to new technologies such as artificial intelligence, And with the motivation and funding of patient organizations to get involved in those innovation efforts, I think it has great potential. So there have been uh, already cases where drugs have been brought to market or not to market, but to late stage clinical trials much more quickly than would normally be done using the repurposing route. Nicole, how important is the use of patient data in all this? We hear a lot from politicians about the importance of this data. It's already come up in this discussion. What's happened during the pandemic has allowed us to see the power of data, patient data, as we were talking about in the recovery trial, 
all of the data that helped us to understand that dexamethasone worked was patient data. You know, I think 40,000 patients have been involved in the recovery trial, and they were keen to be involved because they understood that people like them would be helped by the use of that data. So I think what's important is that we tell stories about the impact of that data. The recent strategy published by the Department of Health and Social Care was even called Data Saves Lives. I think that's what we need to promote to people, that in examples like the recovery trial during COVID, data can save lives, and that's what the opportunity is. And then it's up to the government and so on to make those appropriate arguments using the evidence in front of us about what's happened. Paul, there are considerable privacy concerns. Only last month was the government forced to delay a data scraping scheme proposed by NHS England, where patients had to opt out to avoid their data being used. In the end, the delay happened because of backlash from campaigners and even GPs. And I don't think many people, as users of the NHS, have even heard of it. Is telling people how useful it is to harvest their data really enough to allay privacy concerns? I mean, this has to be placed in a little bit of a historical context. There was a move called Care Data a few years ago that was very similar to this, that ran into a lot of trouble, both legally, professionally, and in terms of public opinion. And I'm very worried that... Well, let me just backtrack and say, I think the sharing of data and access to NHS medical records, potentially, if done properly, is really powerful. So I'm, I'm not against that in principle. But I think this has to be done really carefully and really thoughtfully to avoid some of the pitfalls. People have got real concerns about data privacy, broadly speaking, in their everyday lives, as well as in the healthcare uh, sort of setting. And unfortunately, there's been cases where the good governance of data in the NHS has not always taken place, or certainly there's been some high profile cases in the press around, I'd say, a few years ago in the relationship to care data, where people were really concerned about what was going to be done about their data. And the proposal on the table at the moment is an opt out. It's, a, it's an assumed or presumed consent model. And if that's going to be applied, then governance is everything. Communication is not going to be the answer here. It's, a, it's making sure that there's the regulation and governance of the use of this data, that where privacy concerns are centrally placed, is absolutely essential. And that's the only way we're going to get useful data for the NHS and for innovation if those safeguards are put in place. And I'm afraid at the moment, I think there's a, the jury's out. I think much more work needs to be done, not on communicating the benefits, I think they're very clear, but on actually putting in place really robust data privacy arrangements that will ensure that that data that's given by patients, so I say through assumed consent, is not uh, misused. Chinmay, you've mentioned AI a couple of times in this interview. How exactly can artificial intelligence help in medical research? How does that work? So one of the things that actually happens is imagine that you have clinical trial data that is existing in, in files. A lot of this was recorded on paper. And one of the first things we do is to take all of this and then transfer it digitally and then run machine learning algorithms that try and find patterns between the various variables that exist in the data. So for example, level of cholesterol and ethnicity or outcomes related to cardiometabolic disease and certain types of patient groups. And by actually finding this, we develop much more refined hypotheses that allow us to understand is one therapy or a particular dose of a therapy going to be more effective or less effective for a certain patient population, which we then take on further to a clinical trial and test it out in real terms. So this whole process of using artificial intelligence on existing data and creating very refined hypotheses is something that allows us to really accelerate 
the process of drug hunting, essentially. Paul, is AI a reliable tool in this search? Hydroxychloroquine, for example, showed high potential in AI trials for tackling COVID-19. But in the end, it was a high-profile flop. I mean, at the end of the day, however much sort of modeling and hypothesis generating you do using models or machine learning, the key test is what happens in the clinic, what happens in the human body. And whilst lots of the techniques now for that sort of modeling are getting very sophisticated and quite predictive, we don't know until drugs are put in patients and they're evaluated robustly through the gold standard of clinical trials, what's going to happen. So I think these tools are powerful in terms of presumably speeding up and reducing the cost of drug development and doing discovery in a way that's not been possible before. But we have to realise that clinical testing in human subjects is the only way we can ensure both efficacy and safety. So there's great hope here, but I think we can't see this as a substitute for those that hard clinical miles that are put in developing these drugs. Moving on from tech, Nicole, you've written about how important it was for recovery to cut bureaucracy. Is there too much red tape in drug development? And is it going to be possible to get rid of it when we're dealing with illnesses that aren't COVID-19? So I think many of the processes which have been put in place have ended up being put on top of each other. And I think what COVID has been really helpful in is helping us to think about what's really essential. And so a lot of the regulatory process have been pared back or they've been able to be run in parallel. So I don't think that the regulators are necessarily going to do away with any of the steps, but maybe addressing them in a more thoughtful fashion. So at the HRA, for example, we're thinking more about how we change our process than how we change our methodology so that we wouldn't lose any of the depths but we're able to do particular steps in parallel or just to accelerate um, or change the way that the committee meetings work so that decisions can be made more quickly. That's a really important point because one of the arguments made by those who are more vaccine skeptic is how quickly these vaccines were made for COVID-19. But actually, when you look into it, no corners were cut. They were just far more efficient about funding and timelines than essentially we've ever been before when creating a vaccine. That's exactly right. There's been so much more parallel processing. It never before have medicines been or vaccines been manufactured before they're, you know, in phase two clinical trials. You know, in the UK here, we were setting up the manufacturing and uh, getting the factories ready to go way before the medicines had been approved, for example. And the scale up for the phase three trials was happening even while the phase two trials were still being completed. So it's much more about changing the process than it is about changing the methodology. And the MHRA have been very clear that they, they've been, you know, very robust on, on these points, that they're not, this is not a sort of a second class approach in the slightest. It's actually just a better process. Chinmay, as the Novartis report The New Possible notes, developing a brand new medicine typically takes 12 years and can cost over a billion pounds. Now, it isn't obvious that with COVID, we've cut the amount of money going into vaccines. In fact, we've dramatically increased the amount of money going into vaccines. But the process of vaccine development has shown that timelines can be truncated. Absolutely. And I think some of the points that Nicole made around 
not compromising on safety, not compromising on the robustness of the data set, but really looking at the process and saying, what are steps that we can do in parallel versus in sequence? Are there some things that we can front load, perhaps at risk, in order to actually truncate and accelerate these timelines? And then what are things that we can do very practically in terms of speeding up recruitment steps, getting committee decisions faster rather than on scheduled points, etc. And I think the COVID-19 process has shown us that it is possible. And many of the lessons that we've learned in the context of the pandemic can be applied to non-COVID-19 medications as we do drug development going forward. And Paul, on the other side, the government doesn't just regulate, it also funds. And you've written in the past about a more mixed pharmaceutical industry sponsored by government. You hinted at it in this podcast as well. Tell us what that looks like. I think what's really interesting about COVID is the success that's been in terms of public-private partnership. The, The UK government has put in a lot of strategic investment in terms of manufacturing capacity in particular, but some of the other sort of essential pieces that are required to enable drug development to occur both in the private sector and the public sector. So I think this partnership model is very strong. It must be remembered that a lot of the risk was taken out of vaccine development internationally by things like the US federal government committing up to $20 billion ahead in, in advanced commitments to buying these drugs. So that's an example of where a strategic approach to a public health problem, which has been very well funded, has been taken up by the private sector and resulted in this very successful delivery of vaccines. So I think we have to see this relationship between the public and private sector as absolutely central going forwards in terms of driving innovation in critical areas where there's not been as much success. For example, Alzheimer's disease or other neurodegenerative conditions, I think might be open to this possibility where the public sector says, or the government says, you know, we need therapeutics here. We're prepared to put some money in to help sort of stimulate and support investment by the private sector. And trying to develop that is really important. The other thing I'm very keen on when I talk about a mixed economy of drug innovation is this input from uh, patient organizations, charities, clinicians that take a lead in developing drugs that are maybe commercially less attractive in the first instance, and then working later in partnership with companies to take them to market on the basis that the prices charged by companies will be lower as a consequence of the investment that's been made up front. So the issues around benefit sharing, that's not to undermine the existing model of you know the, the big pharma investment in much more risky projects, but I think it complements that and can help uh, provide a better public health solution. Well, Jim May, from the industry perspective, what would you make of this with big pharma taking on potentially a less central role? Do, do you think there's a, a more opportunity for a more diverse system? Well, I think, um, you know, as Paul was mentioning, multiple models can coexist in multiple areas. We've looked at sort of areas like vaccines, like antimicrobial resistance, or some of the more intractable diseases, where certainly collaboration between academia, between the public sector, between the industry can be extremely fruitful, because these are very high risk areas, where development of new approaches and therapeutics is extremely difficult. I would say for me and for us, what is really interesting to see in the pandemic is also the collaboration that has happened within the industry. So the way the industry has collaborated with each other in order to use their manufacturing capacity like we have at Novartis for the development and 
production of vaccines, even though we're not directly involved in the vaccines business. This is one thing where we've come together and said, this is a public health problem across the world. We need to get billions of doses of vaccines to large numbers of people in a very short period of time. This is a time for us to collaborate with each other and use our manufacturing facilities to support others in the industry to develop. So I, I see multiple different models, collaboration across sectors, but also collaborations within sectors in order to meet some of the intractable problems. So Chinmay, can you expand on that? Novartis was allowing vaccine companies and makers to use its manufacturing facilities to produce vaccines faster? That's correct. So as you recall, beginning of this year, when some of the early vaccines got registration, one of the big problems was not having enough manufacturing capacity around the world to produce these vaccines fast enough. While Novartis is not in the business of making vaccines, one of the things that we asked ourselves was, how can we help? And we looked at our own manufacturing footprint and capacity, and we said, you know, can we actually create some spare capacity so that we can collaborate with manufacturers like Pfizer-BioNTech and offer some of that capacity to accelerate the production of these vaccines, which is exactly what we've done. So that is our contribution to the race to vaccinate the world, if you will. And Paul, of course, one of the problems with the mixed economy approach here is that when it came to COVID-19, central banks around the Western world decided they were going to provide essentially an unlimited amount of money to get some vaccines over the line. That probably won't be the case going forward with other illnesses. No, I'm sure that I'm sure that's right. But you've got to remember that the public sector put in a vast amount of money into basic biomedical research quite a, a lot of which is also applied and translational. So there are public investments that are strategically oriented that could be used perhaps in a slightly different way to stimulate certain types of investment from the private sector. So I think it's it's about what the incentives are and what the priorities are. I mean, the rare disease area, for example, there's something called orphan drug legislation, which refers to giving extra market protection to companies developing drugs for these very small markets and by extending their patent life and things like that. And that's proved to be highly successful uh, in uh, leading to a greater number of uh, these drugs for these very rare diseases with small markets. So I think the private sector is an important partner with the public sector, but the public sector also has to think about what its priorities are. And I suppose issues like pricing, price transparency start to come into this as a significant part of the sort of equation, the sort of social contract, if you like, between the industry and government. So clearly in European markets, governments provide the bulk of funding for healthcare systems and are looking to contain those costs. That's not necessarily the case in, in the United States. So I think this negotiation, if you like, of uh, support and benefits and expectations in terms of return from the private sector by government is a really interesting area of public policy and one I think in the post-pandemic world will be increasingly important. Nicole, with your experience, what makes for good collaboration? You have the government, the private sector, researchers often coming from different places. What pulls it together? So I think what worked particularly well during COVID was the aligned mission Everybody wanted to get to the same end and there was a real sense of urgency. Mm. And so I think that's a really important element. I think also that consultation and understanding each other's motives is very important. So where the, the mission is less clear, 
when we've worked um, across sectors on, on things like the life sciences industrial strategy in the past, thinking about what the drivers are for each of the different sectors is really important in making sure that you get to an outcome that works for all of the different parties. And I think that's a really critical thing to, to think about when working across sectors. Well, one more question that I'm going to ask of all of you. What are you most excited about when it comes to the future of pharma research? Uh, Chin May, I'll start with you. Well, I think one of the things that I'm very excited about is this spirit of collaboration that COVID-19 has taught us, the ability to join forces in order to really tackle some of the more difficult areas of disease. I think the other thing is also the ability for the entire ecosystem to use the COVID-19 pandemic and start to work at some of the more societal problems of health inequalities, building back in a better way to tackle some of these things that are quite endemic in society. I think the pandemic has put a big light on a lot of these problems and our ability to now get down at a granular level on the drivers of some of these issues and start to address them is something that I'm most hopeful for. Nicole? So I think that the pandemic has really given us a glimpse of the future where we can really collaborate across sectors, where we can really use technology and health data to drive forward conclusions, where we can accelerate regulation and and have parallel processing. And I hope that will allow us to leap forward in a lot of other sectors in a more rapid way than we were doing before the pandemic. And Paul? I'm really interested in the development of cell and gene therapy. This sounds a a little technical, but these are the advanced therapies based on the sort of cutting edge research in genetics. And I think those are really exciting developments, but they also raise some really interesting public policy questions about reimbursement, about how we pay for those. And they require the building of a whole new infrastructure in the NHS and in the private sector to deliver those and to follow them up over very long periods of time. So I think that negotiating the issues around, uh, say, paying for those, who gets access to those, I think is going to be really challenging. But if that can be negotiated properly, then the benefits there, I think, are really very significant. If I may quickly on that particular point, as one of the pioneers in the area of cell and gene therapy, I just wanted to point out how extraordinary this technology is and what a difference it can make to patients. Novartis as a company has been working on cell therapy and gene therapy for the last number of years across multiple therapeutic areas, specific types of cancers. And what we've basically seen is the power of using these gene and cell therapy approaches in in bringing transformational medicine to patients. A glimpse into that collaboration that Nicole was discussing. Chin Mei, Nicole and Paul, thank you for joining me. Thank you.